so I expected her um, to have a bad reaction and sort of blame it on me as if, you know, I, as if anybody could make anybody trans. And I was so scared to tell her. And as soon as I told her, you know, the first thing she said was, everything's going to be okay. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 99, The Mother's Refuge, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Paria Hasori, M.D., author of Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change by New World Library. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. It fascinates me how easy it can be to congratulate myself on being open-minded, all-inclusive, and accepting of others. My self-praise doesn't end there, as I'm always ready, it seems, to easily forgive myself for the secret judgments and grudges that I don't speak out loud for the world to hear. It's not very difficult to envision oneself as some type of enlightened being with an expansive and compassionate heart when we're never presented with information or circumstances that threaten the levees that protect us from all the varieties of human existence that color our world. This may seem like a strange way to lead you into my conversation with Paria Hasori, MD, author of Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. But after reading her book and visiting with her, I quickly learned that for all the heart and mind work that I claim to do, I still have old mazes to navigate, filled with lingering fears. Paria's work is an honest one, a memoir free from the veneer of personal perfection that we've grown accustomed to, a type of tailored-for-consumption presentation that I myself am often guilty of. I was watching my mind as I read this work of hers, looking to see what thoughts would arise, almost as if I already knew on some level that I would feel the sting of my own boundaries to accept others for who they are. The truth was that I was afraid to meet the limits of my understanding. What I discovered in Paria's book and in our conversation was that the way to expand my love was to meet those limits and not turn away. The journey of shock, pain, confusion, acceptance, renewal, and love that Paria and her daughter go through is enlightening. It has not only given me a more nuanced understanding of my expanded human family, but it also provided me the opportunity to feel textures and wounds inside me that I'd never touched before. When we are given the chance to see old wounds, we can lay hands on them to heal them. I am thankful for Paria's courage and willingness to share her book and time with me. Now, it's time to lay old fears aside, seek out our tender hearts, make room for all the varied children of the earth, then tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up this morning, dreaming of the story I can hear, the way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep, on the path to your deliverance. In a holy ball of light Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source With my Find the Good News Beacon series I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. If you don't mind for my listeners, if you could give me a quick uh, overview of who you are and who I'm talking to today, that would be fantastic. Sure. Uh, My name is Paria Hasuri. I'm a pediatrician and mother of three in Los Angeles. I'm also an Iranian-American immigrant 
And um, one of my children is transgender, and I've written a memoir about my experience of uh, sort of walking through her transition with her. Okay, so that that this book, I kind of wondered what it, what is going to be like for me reading this. My son is gay, and. Mm-hmm. I wondered if there was going to be any kind of common ground that I could find in that experience of him coming out or, or things that I saw through his life. Uh, and I did find so much common ground with your experience. But mm-hmm. oddly enough, I found more common ground in the experience I had with my daughter, who is not gay, not transgender, but there were things that you were saying in this book that I was going, oh, my gosh, I get this. I get especially some of these uh, feelings you had right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things right out of the gate about your book that it was just the beginning of the story where you got the phone call from the school. Mm-hmm. And you you were so honest in your book. And that's another thing that I loved about it. I was like, she's just telling you the truth. I mean, it was so peeled back mm-hmm. and I'm so thankful that you did that because I immediately went, Oh man, she's saying like what I felt. Cause you got that phone call and the way you expressed it was like another phone call from us, from the school. Right. And I just right out of the gate, I, I felt that cause I had been through that kind of experience Mm -hmm. and i was like man i remember that so well just feeling like what else could possibly happen you'd get a reprieve life would sort of get normal and you felt like okay things are okay and i kind of remember feeling like i was always holding my breath sort of waiting for the next phone call and you just kind of expressed that and i went wow okay so here we go not the same exact issues but very similar experience Yeah. I mean, I think parent, you know, it's parenting, you know, this is what all of parenting is. The whole idea was to write a book that would have just universal appeal, not just, you know, be something for parents of trans kids, but would you know, every parent, every person would be able to relate to on, you know, some level. And, and then during the process, they would also get some, you know, exposure to what it's like to have one of your children, you know, be transition, uh, be, be trans and, and transition. But yeah. One of the so, unique, thank you. Yeah. Well, that was, that's the way that was the tone of your whole book so far, as far as I've been through it. And the other thing that really I thought was different about your, your memoir here is that I guess we, we assume, and I, I, I can say this with my son, too, as well. I, I had almost the opposite experience with him. My son, and if you don't mind me sharing that, I think it might be interesting to hear how, how you feel about this. You know, when my son was two years old, I remember I, I had just gotten divorced, and I was kind of seeing this woman, and my kids were around. And one morning, you know, he was still in diapers. I mean, like, you know, just potty training. And he... He picked up a brush and she had called me in the room and she said, Oren, come here, come see what he's doing. And he was combing her hair, like just so lovingly, like slowly and just petting her hair. And she was like, this is such a weird experience, but he was mesmerized by it. But then I noticed that that started to emerge as he was interested in hair products and bows and, and then Barbie dolls that had long hair and fixing their hair. Well, that I never discouraged it, but he just did not gravitate towards trucks and army men and action figures and comic books. It was always like makeup and girl colors and and things that were traditionally related to that we would consider female toys. Right. Or at least society considers female toys. Well, I just said I rolled with it and I just said, whatever this is, it is. I don't know what it's going to lead to. And there were some people that were like, oh, you need to tell him not to do that or teach him. I'm like, well, I don't feel that way. But then, you know, if and I always said as he would get older and these things continued, you know, to be in his life and he was attracted to those things. I always had in the back of my head and and I discussed it with my wife. I said, you know, if he were to tell me that he or gay, or if he were to say, oh, I'm having some gender identity issues, that would not surprise me. You know, it wouldn't come at me like out of left field. 
But I'm reading your book and I'm going, you didn't have any of that. Like I had, you didn't have any, oh, maybe one day, like I'm probably going to need to prepare myself for this and start reading or learning how to make this be this transition or this shift. You just like found out one day all of a sudden, right? 13 years old, correct? Yeah. So my, you know, my daughter didn't have any of that. You know, she didn't have an interest in, you know, makeup, dresses, uh, girl, whatever girl traditional toy would be when, when she was younger. So I really had never for a second thought that she might be trans. I, I, for all of my kids, I think the possibility of them being gay was, um, something I was always aware of because I felt like that's not necessarily something that, uh, you would, show until later that, you know, that makes sense that, you know, maybe you wouldn't discover that about your child until they they start, you know, puberty. But I always thought that if your child has any sort of gender identity issue, that that would present itself, you know, early from when they're, you know, toddler or little kid. Um, And, you know, when she came out at 13, she had never really done you know, anything that would make me think that she might have any question about gender. I mean, she was never like the sporty kid, but she liked to play with cars and, um, little trains and Legos and play Super Mario. I mean, she was just like the Lego Super Mario, (laughs) you know, not sporty kid, but not anything that we ever thought, you know, is feminine or we associate with, with, you know, uh, female gender identity. Yeah. You know, it's interesting reading a book like yours and I would, I wish where I live and where I'm at geographically, I always wonder if someone is just going to randomly pick a book like this and go, Hey, this is something that I have a bias about. I feel strong. Like right now today, I feel like I could say, Oh, that's wrong or something like that. Something very harsh and and with a line on it. And would they have the wherewithal to go, you know, this is obviously something I feel this way about. I should read this to see if it would open my mind. Now that takes like a big step for a lot of people to to go into territory like that. And as I was reading your book, it's funny because I don't consider myself to be filled with biases, but I love to watch like, sort of the background noise when I'm reading a book. And the truth of the matter is, and this is just like a total confession, I started to see my own little biases. Even as someone, I'm sitting here going, I think I'm this enlightened person. I'm raising a gay son and it's all good. And I'm stand right by his side, you know, through the whole journey. I have zero problems with this. And as I'm reading your book, I would have these little feelings that would come up and go like I would make these weird justifications mm-hmm. like, and you and then you would turn around in the book and and it was almost like you were reading my mind because you were go yeah well I would think well my husband you know he performs these types of surgeries so maybe this is because of xyz you're doing all these little math equations well I could see those same equations like running around in my head Right. As I'm reading your book. And I thought that was really and it's I hate it even admitting that. I mean, because you don't I don't want to believe that, but it was just the truth. Right. Well, imagine what it's like to admit <laughs> all that in a book that everybody can read, because I really I always considered myself really open minded, enlightened person. <laughs> um, and I think I was open minded in regards to everything but being trans and trans was I think you know what part of it was that I just wasn't a big part of it was just that I was completely blindsided and not expecting it for my child but for me to blame all of it on that and say that there must have not been a part of me that actually have implicit bias against trans people would be, you know, not being honest because, you know, when I read back my own words or think about my thoughts, you know, I realize that there's no way that a hundred percent of how I reacted could be attributed to, you know, being blindsided by my child's coming out. There had to be a part of me that, um, 
what did have some implicit bias towards trans people and 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 that had so much ignorance regarding you know what it is to be transgender and how transgender you know kids present and um you know what and uh ignorance leads us to think all kinds of you know have <laughs> right. all kinds of thoughts and have all sorts of reactions that we we really we shouldn't have so um yeah yeah something that i one of the takeaways that i had and another thing that i i felt common ground with you on um was when you started talking about being an immigrant or coming from an immigrant family i really didn't expect mm-hmm. that in the book either that kind of came at me from another direction and I, I I stopped for a little while at one point and I don't remember where it was but you were talking about that experience but it was like I was having this realization too especially with my own experience with my son because I, I I realized that some of my behavior was d- due to my own experience as a child who was bullied you know mm-hmm. and so that I kind of carried that into what you experienced as an immigrant being you, you you said that you were in the fifth grade in 1983 you know right after the iran hostage crisis right and right. so being an immigrant that like completely paints your life right i mean you were just giving a description of sitting in the back of the classroom or sort of being alienated and i was right. like man okay so i was in the fifth grade in like 1984 and i didn't have that experience but i was being bullied and picked on by kids right around that time period i rem- that painted my life like that that we that time period and then when i my son started telling me hey i, I think i'm i'm gay i do think this all of that just sort of kicked in. I immediately went, oh, my God, he's going to be bullied and tormented by society. He's not going to be accepted by people. He's going to be called names. He's going to be outcast. He's going to be shunned. And it made me afraid. And I was afraid to admit that, honestly, until I was sitting there reading your book. I was like, so much of the way I navigated that was really my own fear. And my own experience mm-hmm. had nothing to do with him. Right. Did you? And it seems like you had a similar experience. Uh, absolutely. Well, for, I love that you are relating to so many parts of this book because here we are, two people who, you know, on the outside seem, you know, very different, living in different, you know, completely different areas of the country, um, had different childhood experiences, yet the same, you know, yeah, isn't that wild? I mean, that just shows right. you, right. I agree with what you're saying there. Right. And so, um, you know, yeah. So I think a lot of it was, you know, I, I definitely being bullied in the fifth grade caused me to then be insecure all my rest of my middle school and high school years and be sort of, you know, alone and really, um, in some way affected me for, for the rest of my life, you know, having, you know, having that insecurity from because of that year and then feeling the need after that, that I need to constantly like prove myself or prove my worth or prove, you know, who I am. And so, you know, when, when she came out, you know, all the fear that I had about, you know, I said, you know, this is the experience I had and it had affected me so much and she could potentially her experience could potentially be 10 times or 20 times or a hundred times worse right. than my experience, you know, as a trans a teenager. Um, and so I was so afraid and that fear was causing so much noise in my head that I just couldn't really see her or listen to her, um, with an open mind or, an, you know, that's the yeah. thing about fear, and that's I talk about this all the time on this show. It's not what I intended for the show to be about, but it has really become that, really about the high value of digging into the past of who we really are and figuring that stuff out. Because man, I've start I have learned that so many so many decisions are just old fears just lingering around like cobwebs. And I think I'm making this decision with wisdom and discernment and intelligence. And really it's all just sort of underneath it all. There's this foundation of old childhood fear. There was Mm -hmm. one part in your book 
And it may not, maybe it isn't a big deal, but I, I felt myself holding my breath. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a part where you were talking about, uh, you were almost imagining all the negative things that your mother was going to say to you. Right. Um, and I felt myself holding my breath. I was like, oh, I know this feeling. I had a similar relationship with a parent and I was always afraid of like accusation and condemnation. And so I would do that before, like, oh, they're, they're all, I already knew what they were thinking right. and I was having the conversations with them in my mind. And so I was like, really kind of like, I could feel myself getting anxious. And then your mother doesn't say any of those things. Right. And I went, oh, I was, it was like, I was in an action movie watching a cliffhanger and I wonder, do you, do you, did you have that kind of, was that, that was accurate yes. the way you felt? I mean, I was basically dreading telling my mother. I was afraid that she would blame it all on me as if my poor parenting had caused this or, you know, my spending too much time on you know, on myself and, you know, my, my work, my hobbies, my friends, whatever had caused me to not give her enough attention and time and not parent her the way I should. And therefore, you know, now she was saying that she was trans. And so I expected her, um, to have a bad reaction and sort of blame it on me as if, you know, I, as if anybody could make anybody trans. And I was so scared to tell her, And as soon as I told her, you know, the first thing she said was, everything's going to be okay. And I almost was like, did she hear what I just said to her? You know, so I repeated what I had told her and spelled it out to make sure that she understood, you know, what I was telling her. And again, she was like, everything is going to be okay. And it was like the biggest, uh, weight was lifted off my shoulder. I mean, I just, it was like, as if there was an elephant on my chest, like stepping down, I couldn't breathe. And she said, everything is going to be okay. And like the elephant took his you know, foot off and, and I could breathe again. Um, so, and that's what makes me so sad is, you know, my mom was able to do that for me, but you know, when Ava first came out to me, You know, I didn't do that for her. I didn't say everything's going to be okay. I said, no, no, no. You know, this is not happening. You're not trans. Yeah. Um, Listening to you tell that story. I mean, I just, again, not to keep beating that fear horse to death, but I just kept feeling like that in listening to your story, that that had so much to do with it, that it would just seemed like. It wasn't so much about you that you had a lot of fear for you. You really seem to have a lot of fear for Ava. Like she's going to go. I I just want to make sure like this is actually what this is. I don't want her to be. uh, God, I don't like to say it this way. I'm just going to say it bluntly, like messing her life up. Like I don't want her to be tormented and to have to go through all the struggles. Because, I mean, you know, looking out in the culture, you see, I mean, especially now, I mean, It, while there is more information, there's more openness, there's also sort of this rhetoric of hate and aggression as well that has risen up, especially in the last, you know, four or five years. Right. And, yeah, I mean, you fear for your child. So it seems like it was not so much about you. And I might mean, be wrong, but at least my takeaway wasn't that you you could accept it. Right. But you really were worried almost. Is that accurate? Am I wrong? Yeah. So I had fear on multiple levels. So, you know, one was just the fear of letting a teenager, you know, make some decisions that Mm. she might regret. And then ultimately, you know, I'd be the responsible, you know, one for that. Um, But that fear, you know, with getting more, you know, information, that fear, you know, that this was a temporary thing, um, you know, went away as I started to realize, no, this is truly who she is. But then, you know, there was a fear for her safety, uh, fear for her being lonely and fear for her life being limited by being trans. I mean, you want, all of us want our children to um, have unlimited potential and all, you know, possibilities and, you know, be able to do whatever, you know, they want in life and reach their highest potential. I mean, that's what all parents want for their kids. And I was afraid 
that this was going to limit her life, that she would get discriminated against um, when she would apply for jobs in the future, that she would get, uh, she would have a hard time, you know, potentially finding a partner, um, that every time she walked into a room, people would look at her and see her, you know, as a trans person before they would see everything else, you know, that, that she is. Yeah. Gosh, I, I understand all of that, even just from deal. I mean, that the same feeling, you know, I've thought about this many times, all of my own worries about the things going on with my son. I thought, you know, as he enters high school, you know, for me, having a first kiss is not an issue or dating a bunch of different people. No one cares. Look, going through the process of finding a partner and breakups and all the things about relationship, intimacy, um, even heavy petting and things like that that are a part of adolescence. All of that stuff, I went, okay, all of that's going to be more complicated for my son. And that did make me sad because I thought, you know, he's going to go to school. Well, typically you're around those people. That's your sort of dating pool. You know, that's where you're meeting people. And if you don't work out, it's no big deal. But in his situation, I thought, well, he's not going to have that many people to be have relationships with because there aren't as many gay boys at school, you know, and, and if there are, and he, he may not be attracted to them and then, you know, it's just, it is, it it has made life a little bit different. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It has made it a little more, um, I hate to say lonely, but a little lonelier to some degree for him. I could, I could say, you know, his, his relationships that he has are really intimate and strong, but his intimate, the, the, the personal ones that are like more, um, romantic, they're very, uh, they, well, they don't exist cause he's, he's isolated to some degree. You know, and so that that yeah. is the truth. And I thought, you know, it is hard for kids that are going through any kind of uh, – I don't think people think about that part too much. I really don't. Yeah. I think they just sometimes want to go, oh, that's not the norm or that's an aberration and it's not um, – and they get more hung up on that. They don't think they're just human beings. They still have the same needs and desires and wants to have joy and happiness and love and all these things that we all take. I mean, we, I squandered those things in my youth. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm watching my son and I'm going, he would, he would cherish to have some of the things that I just took for granted at his age. Yes. Do you have that kind of feeling? I mean, similar Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the other thing is, and despite it being so much harder for them, you know, they, it's still much would be much harder for them to not live as their true authentic selves. Right. You know, that's the part where, you know, I wish, you know, people could, you know, see and understand better over time. Um, it's so it's so much worse and more unbearable for them to not be their authentic selves that they're willing to you know go through whatever is you know necessary and whatever hardships you know come with being able to you know be who they actually are yeah um and it you know and while as you know other teenagers may get to just sort of be teenagers um you know, teens, um, who are trans or gay or, you know, or, you know, something else going on, they're spending their teen years, like every day is an act of like courage and bravery, you know? Yeah, right, right. Um, While, you know, um, just being who they are and and stepping out into the world. Yeah. And that's a lot to carry at that age. It really is. I, I can feel that gravity. I felt it in your book. Uh, I could feel it even, even a little bit on a, you know, look the other day we were on the river and there's up in Natchitoches, Louisiana. It's a really beautiful riverfront. My son loves to go roller skate out there and he has these bright orange roller skates. You know, he's 17, he beautiful kid, you know, and he takes his shirt off and he gets in the suns on him and he's, he's skating down the, the riverfront and I'm watching him and I'm like, he's beautiful. I mean, like. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just thinking about how much I love him and how he he's 
free to be, you know, this, this beautiful person. And as I'm sitting there having those thoughts, these, these young guys, his age are driving over the bridge on the pickup truck and they're, they're yelling. He had his earphones in, but they were yelling, you know, slurs at him. And Mm -hmm. I, and I was like, isn't this incredible? And he, he was oblivious. And he later he goes, were those guys like yelling something? I said, yeah. And I didn't tell him what they said, but it was just like, I, I wish, I hope that we get to a point in the world where people can see people just as who they are, as beautiful, the beautiful beings they really are. I wish that yeah. those boys could love him the way I love him, you know, probably the way you feel about Ava too. You know, you wish people could just love her. And I mean, they, and they probably do. Right. Your book probably has helped yeah. a ton with that. I mean, to really uh, put that out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if we all really just took the time to get to know each other and see each other, um, we would be living in a different world and it would be a much, you know, much better one. And hopefully we'll, over time, we'll slowly get there. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's the thing. I think, you know, if, if somebody just looks at Ava, you know, they they may, one of the first things they may notice about her is that she's trans, but if, if really somebody just takes two minutes to talk to her, <laughs> you know, there's so much, she, you know, like the trans thing just goes out the window because right. then they just realize what they, overall, you know, incredible human she is. Yeah. You know, so how did you see Ava change as, as you began to, um, really, I guess, have more acceptance of what was happening? How did you yeah. see her change? I mean, did she, yeah. did that affect like the gravity of those two things, the orbit? Yes. Yeah. It was really once, once I decided to, um, start accepting and supporting who, who she was. And really I changed my outlook from, you know, being pessimistic about her future to being optimistic about her future. Um, that, you know, like that letting go of that negativity, um, really just changed the overall mood in our house. Yeah. <laughs> and, she was able to really start th- thriving. You know, she was able to really start being who she is. And, you know, then, and that translated into, you know, I was worried that she was going to not, she was going to lose all her friends and she was not going to be able to make friends. And she actually, I mean, she did lose some old friends, but she made a lot of new friends and, you know, was able to make better friends than she ever has before because she was actually being, you know, her authentic, you know, self. And, um, you know, so then now she has, you know, more friends than she's ever had. She's so much happier. She's, you know, she, before she came out, she struggled off and on with depression and we could never figure out what her, what was, you know, the root cause of her depression. And she is so much happier now. I mean, she, she smiles brighter and bigger than she ever did before. Um, her eyes have a light in them now that, you know, was gone for, for years. Um, so it, and I think really things started to change for her when we started to support her. Um, and when her home went from being a place where we were arguing about, um, whether or not, you know, she could transition or was trans or, you know, whatever to her home going to being a safe, safe space where she couldn't a hundred percent be, you know, authentically herself. Right. Um, Right. And shouldn't home be that? I mean, right. That's, that's one of the things that makes me so sad so often in the world is that, Sometimes home isn't the safe space for a lot of people. And, you know, gosh, I mean, you want it to be a refuge because if home's not a refuge, they're going to run, especially children, they'll run into other refuges that maybe don't have their best interest, you know, in mind. I mean, for me, I remember when, when I was growing up and in my lonely sort of middle school teen years, I mean, home was, I would spend, you know, every school day waiting until I could get home. And it was like, once I got home, I, I felt like I could breathe and be, you know, myself. Yeah. Um, so 
home was like my safe space. And, you know, at one point, especially when, you know, we were at this meeting and this one therapist said to us, you know, don't be your child's first bully was such, um, oh, wow. it was such an impactful yeah. moment for me because, you know, I realized it made me realize for the first time that maybe home wasn't this, you know, was I not making home the safe space where she could be exactly, you know, who she is. And, I, and obviously in our home, it was never unsafe in terms of like physical harm or right. anything like that. But, but it wasn't, there was a time period where it wasn't a place where she could be exactly who she was, you yeah. know? And, um, and once we changed that, uh, I mean, she just, she just took off in terms of her happiness and, and, and thriving and flourishing. Man, that's such a powerful thing. Don't be your child's first bully. I mean, I wonder how many parents are thinking that that's what they are to their child. I mean, really, you know, that's right. something to, I, I, yeah. I could write that down and stick it on the wall around my house. So I, every day, remember that, you know? I mean, when I first heard those words come out of this one therapist's mouth, it was like a, it was like a gunshot, you know, to yeah. me. I mean, it just, you know, I mean, I, my husband was there. And I mean, we both just like froze and it was just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I, I should make T-shirts and bumper stickers and posters and everything out of that one statement. Yeah, there was uh, something that and this may be just out of left field and it was right at the beginning of your book. And I. I thought of it because, and I don't know, it's important. It was important, a little important thing to me personally, but I noticed that at the beginning of the book, you, you, you basically, you said you were agnostic, but then you started, you immediately, when you got that call, it was like, you just were praying to God, the universe, like almost passionately. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because I've been through that kind of experience myself and I, I know a lot of people who do. And I wonder what that is in human beings. Like when we hit a wall, like, I mean, I was there just a few weeks ago, my, my father-in-law passed away and I got the call like three, you know, 12, 12 o'clock at night and I had to go drive and tell my wife and it was a whole heavy experience. But I remember when I hung up, I just fell on my knees and just yelled to the sky. And I mean, yelled to the universe, yelled to God. And I, I, I accept death fully, but it was still painful, you know? And uh, I just wonder what that is. It's like something deep and primal in us that when we are just at our wits end, we, we just cry out into the void, you know? Right. Is that kind of what that felt like? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it was, I think I felt so, out of control and um that i just you know i felt like if if there is somebody out there who has control yeah then please like let me know look at me yeah can you see me me you know see what's going on let me know what to do i mean i think it was being so lost and feeling lost so out of control and just not having any idea how I was going to figure out what was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and so I would just, so it was, you know, there was a lot of prayer, even though, you know, I am, you know, I, right. I do identify as agnostic, but there was, but I, you know, and I, I'm not going to get into the whole like spiritual well, yeah, sure, sure. universe and things. I mean, I do, I believe in something. You believe I just in something. Don't know yeah. What I believe in. But like you know? in that and moment, like it was, it felt yeah. valid to just kind of cry out yeah. to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I, I, we've yeah, all been so there. Just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just like someone, if there is some, you know, force, you know, witness um, me. Are you wit- Are you watching me? me? Like I, do I, am, yeah. am I, va- I, I get it. I mean, like, yeah, for for some that's just like the crack, you know, the chink. It's like, okay, yeah. I'm out. I've I've done. I've I don't know what to do. I mean, I've right. been there. It's like wits end. What do I do? You know. And then sometimes it yeah. is. It's uh, it's a crying out. So you wrote yeah. this book because I mean, it sounds like you were writing before. From what I got gathered, you had a blog and you were you were keeping right. keeping sort of like an ongoing. Um, uh, account yeah. of your experience. Mm-hmm. And then it forms into a book because you had, you, you had went to groups and things like that support groups, but you'd really hadn't found people that were, 
uh, had experienced what you'd experienced, which was, you know, no signs until 13 and then, you know, bam. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I had, I'd been writing off and on for a, for a few years. And, but actually when I was writing a blog, it had nothing to do with, with my daughter um, or my kids really. And actually once she came out, I stopped blogging because she, well, because there was a period where she was out to us and not out to the rest of the world. Obviously I can't just, you know, yeah. blog about her when I see. When, okay, you know, gotcha. Yeah. So, so I actually stopped blogging when she came out, but I was, you know, writing articles here and there about about other things. Um, and really, the reason I started, and then I started just private journaling and writing a little bit for myself, pri- you know, privately, mm-hmm. with not necessarily knowing if it would ever get shared. I um, see. You know, after she came out. And the reason really I decided to write my memoir and write our story is that when she came out, you know, I looked for other books um, and all the other books that I found at that time um, all were about, you know, kids who presented in, in childhood, you know, three, four, five years old. And I couldn't find books about kids who came out later and didn't have any signs. Yeah. Um, there's been... Fortunately, in the, just in the last couple of years, there's been more people writing about their experience and um, that narrative has you know, changed more. But I felt like and when I went to the support group meeting is when for um, other families with trans kids was the first time that I finally met some other parents whose kids also hadn't had signs when they were little and who had come out later. And that's when I really started to accept Ava myself. And so I wanted there to be, you know, more stories out there about these kids who's, who, you know, don't present in childhood and are coming out later and, and the parents are completely blindsided by it so that, you know, if this happens to somebody else and they've read my story, you know, they'll have heard a story like that and, and know that not all trans kids have signs when they're little kids and they'll hopefully they'll listen to their kid and consider it as a possibility and not, you know, immediately dismiss their child the way I dismissed Ava when she first came out. Yeah. And that's a great gift of your book. I, th- I really think that's uh that's one of those things that people are going to be able to read for years to come. I mean, cause there's going to be people that are in your, in your shoes, you know, that they're going to be looking for a light. They're going to be the ones that are going to be getting phone calls or getting, uh, wailing at the end of the sky, you know, going, okay, yeah. what do I do? What do I do? And it's, it's a good work. I think that you were, willing to share like that. How does Ava feel about the book? I mean, is she, it's been a good experience for her. Yeah, she's, um, she's really very proud of it. I mean, I, you know, before writing it, I obviously I got her okay to write it and told her what time frame I was going to include in it and made sure my husband was okay with me writing it because he's her father, you know, he's her father. And so, um, and that's really the only people whose approval I asked for was my husband's and, and Ava's. And, you know, Ava is, is herself very loud and proud and active. Um, and so she really, want, you know, was, was okay with the story being shared so that it would hopefully help, you know, other trans, uh, young people who come out to their parents, yeah. um, as well. So, um, so she's been, you know, doing, she's been doing well and she's, she's proud of the book. She's put it on her, you know, social media and, um, and otherwise she's just as, you know, <laughs> almost a 17 year old who is living her life and not too concerned about what her right. mom is doing. So. <laughs> it is interesting. Cause that just kind of gets right back to what I took away from the book was a lot of the stuff that is really just filtered through our own fear. Cause to the, the kids, they're yeah. just, they're like rolling with it. You know, it's like, yeah. look, I just want you to accept me. I'm good. If you can, if you can, I can make the rest of my way, you know? They just want that. Right. The other thing right. I, I would say about, a, you know, I don't have a, a transgender child, but 
you know, having read the book, I think other people are going to be able to find common connections. And then the one thing is just how big can you let your heart be? You know, uh, it helps, it helped me examine some of my own biases that I still have kicking around in there. And, you know, and it's a testament to what we can accept because I think we tell ourselves lies. I really do. I tell myself lies all the time. Like, Oh, I could never accept that. Or I'd never say it out loud that I couldn't accept it. But somewhere deep right. down, I, I feel like there's lines and fences. They're not there really. If you really, really allow yourself, your heart can get bigger. And so can your mind, you know, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, that was part of why I wanted to write this is that I wanted to show that you can go from being completely devastated and thinking that this is something you cannot and will not accept to not just accepting, but, you know, thriving and, you know, really having your life be enhanced and enriched by, by an experience that you didn't think you could ever get through. And I think really the message is, you know, do not underestimate your capacity to evolve and grow with your child. If you open your heart and open your mind and and listen to what they're saying to you. Um, And that can apply to anybody, you know, and any parenting situation as well, or just in general in life. You know? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, give yourself an opportunity. And you know, what a, what a great strength that is, right? I mean, it's something I want to remind myself daily is how, um, how much more can I love people or mm-hmm. how much more, um, am I willing to make room for them? You know, is, yeah. am I, am I, a, am I the kind of being that, uh, that builds walls and fences or do I want to build a bigger house for them to all live in? I know which one I want to be and I know the work I need to do, but I can't, I can't do it if I don't go through the stuff. And sometimes that's like the part we don't want to do. We don't want to go through the painful stuff. We just want to want to just say it and be loving and compassionate. It's something that we have to learn. I mean, we have to go through things I think to learn it. Yeah. And you know, I think a lot of times, you know, people fear what they don't know. So, you know, if you feel like you don't know, you know, a trans kid or a family with a trans kid or just, you know, transgender people, and you may have, you know, you're, it's natural to have fear and bias towards something that, you know, is feels, you know, foreign to you. But then, you know, if you hopefully, you know, if you read my book or if you, or, and you know, another topic you read about, you know, somebody else's experience. And then you feel like you got to know that person, you got to be in their shoes for a few days and, you know, and, and you live their experience. Um, then that fear of the, that fear of the unknown goes away because I think memoir in particular is a way where we get to really, you know, experience, you know, somebody else's experience. Yeah. Um, And I know that's the kind of world I'd like to live in. That's the kind of country I want to live in, too. I mean, that to me is, uh, you know, I walk outside and I I have an American flag hanging off my home. And I I, when I look at that, I think, man, this really could this experiment here could be about that. Exactly what you just described. It could Mm -hmm. be that that's like the greater idea, even that maybe where we've already went. And so maybe the painfully where we're going as ugly as it may look today, uh, maybe this is just like the the growing pains. Maybe we can get to that place where we have, we are a symbol for that again, you know, where it's like how, how big and all-inclusive can we be, you know, and, and right. show the human family that, you know, it is a big melting pot and it's a beautiful thing, you know, yeah. and I think it takes works like yours and, uh, sharing that, just as you said, for us to be able to step into other people's shoes and do that. I hope it is the growing pains. I really, you know, I really do hope this is the growing pains and um, that we're going to come out, you know, better and stronger and more all inclusive for it. I really do. Yeah, me too. That's what I hope yeah. for too. I want, I, I do, I, my, my, I see sometimes in my, in my son, a, um, a little bit of resentment towards those ideas or even the symbols of those ideas. Cause he's like, yeah, but I'm not really represented under that. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. You're right. It's, he's not fully, you know, he's not fully protected and fully, um, uh, accepted, um, or represented, but 
but he could be. And I know that's terrible today, but I believe there's still a possibility for that. It may not, the voices, the loud voices don't tend to make us believe that, but I want to believe it. But the only way that happens is, is for people like you to do the work you're doing. Uh, and for us to share, like you said, these stories and hopefully get our brothers and sisters out there to open their hearts and minds a little more. And have conversations to each other and really listen to each other. And right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hello, Good News listeners and friends. It's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment of Find the Good News, where I take a back seat and let the questions from the Good News fishbowl take over the interviewer role. If you're a longtime listener, then you know that normally there was an ad right here for the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center in Sulphur, Louisiana, my hometown, and the place where I produce Find the Good News. Thanks to the devastation caused by Hurricane Laura, instead of an ad, I'm making an appeal. Hurricane Laura, the strongest hurricane to hit Louisiana in over 150 years, made landfall on the crossover hours between Wednesday, August 26th, and Thursday, August 27th. This monster storm made a straight path from my hometown, Sulphur, and her sister city, Lake Charles, Louisiana. I evacuated that Wednesday evening ahead of the storm and returned the Friday after, and one of the most heartbreaking things I saw was the devastation of our historic treasure, the Brimstone Museum. Trying to describe the scale of the damage to Southwest Louisiana escapes words. Every resource imaginable was brought to its knees. Utilities, water, gas, food, shelter, and medical. Life instantly returned to a cycle of shoring up supplies to survive the coming heat, humidity, stabilization, and recovery. While national news media has moved on, the multi-layered human suffering remains, especially for our poorer communities made even more vulnerable in the aftermath of this savage storm. The road to recovery will be long, and many of the decisions and actions of our national, regional, and local politicians could be put under well-deserved scrutiny at this time. But what can't be criticized is the goodwill, mercy, compassion, tenderness, and drive to help that we've seen from local and regional volunteers. Each day they bring hot food, water, cleaning supplies, tarps, gasoline, and set up every single day in parking lots serving from sunrise to dusk. One particular organization, Care Help of Sulphur, mobilized immediately, volunteers selflessly putting their own needs aside to care for the citizens of Sulphur with all of their varied needs. I've put a link to the website of Care Help of Sulphur on my website, as well as some reflections and links photos, and video about what we are facing right here in Sulphur, Louisiana, the home of Find the Good News. You can find that at findthegood.news slash donate. That's findthegood.news slash donate. The link is also in this episode's show notes. In fact, this episode was produced on power provided by the loving gifts and efforts of this podcast guests and listeners. Any help offered to Care Help of Sulphur or find the good news in the aftermath of Hurricane Laura is deeply appreciated. Brimstone Museum will be saved and hold this spot once again, someday. Care Help will continue to serve the people of this city. Good people will always rise up to do good works when there is a need. Now, Let's take that dive in the fishbowl. So at the end of every show, I give up my role of asking questions and I uh, turn it over to this fishbowl right here. Oh, uh, okay. it's, it's got 400 Fun. questions in here, but what we do is we draw three for each guest and they're random. Oh, so I'm going to pull three questions out this is and first. y'all hadn't, hadn't, done, so hadn't done a game I'm yet. Huh? It's the first time I'm doing this. So. Well, this will be fun. So let's see what we get. Yeah. yeah this is where the universe takes over. So, okay. yes. Okay. Well, this is a tough question. I think I'd have to think about this. So. Yeah. What are you the most scared of losing, and what would you truly lose if you lost it? That's a big question. That is a huge it's question. Very big. Um, I mean, I think I'm most scared of losing the ability to. Um, 
make decisions and choices for myself. Mm, interesting answer. Yeah. Autonomy. I mean, if I, if, yeah. I mean, and if I lost that, I mean, I would just be losing myself altogether. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting because I know I know this isn't related, but I guess coming out of a, um, the loss of a loved one recently and going through mm-hmm. the you know the funeral process and have and having done that before, I've had that thought a few times mm-hmm. when I lost my father and when my wife lost hers. I thought, you know, we're all ultimately left to whoever's left to sort of we lose full autonomy at that point. They're mm-hmm. going to memorialize you and and hopefully do things that you would like. And some of it's for them, right. too. But you ain't, you have no control. It's done. Right. Your, your autonomy is sort of right. gone at that point. So in a way, yeah. I get it. It's like losing yeah. autonomy is the ultimate uh, right. letting go. It's tough. Right. At first, I was going to say losing, con- you know, not having control is my biggest fear. But, you know, it's sort of along the line. And then I thought autonomy is really the better way to say, maybe say yeah. that. But yeah. Yeah, you know? I, I get that. That's tough. I mean, it's tough for all of us, right? I mean, it's kind of like being imprisoned or anything. It's like, you know, now you're e- you know, now you're eating when you're told to eat and now you're wearing what you're told to wear. Those are things that see that that's interesting too because that kind of ties into your book because it got me thinking about school uniforms and mm-hmm. clothing and identity because I'm not a fan of school uniforms at all. I mean, some people love them, I hate them. I right. never liked them and you know, our community everybody wears them. Well, now we're all on lockdown, you know, with, with COVID. And so a lot of kids are doing online school. And so they're wearing whatever they want to online school. And one of the schools had put out a thing saying, you know, about the school uniforms that they have to wear for online schooling. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like, let this go. I mean, come on, these kids, you want to talk about identity issues. I mean, kids, clothing is a way for you to express yourself. And there are some kids that really feel more comfortable uh, in certain apparel, you know? And I thought, we're we're, we're just layering on kids. Like, we make it so hard for them. We wonder why. You know, I think sometimes, because we take their autonomy away completely. We take their expression away. And we're asking them to just fit into all these shapes that just aren't made for them, I think, sometimes. Good answer. That was a good answer. Autonomy. I'm going to think about that one for a while. Okay, this is a good question. How could you add more value to your relationships? I I actually think I have pretty good relationships. (laughs) You know, I... I feel like in the last really few years, I have actually pared down my relationships mm, to the ones that sort of matter the most. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I already have, but I think I could sometimes be a little bit of a better listener. <laughs> <laughs> Listening is uh, hard, especially if you're an assertive like person and you're a thinker. Because I get it. I mean, I try to listen, but there, especially in having lots of conversations like these, I mean, listening is a part of it, but um, I do, it's a give and take. I mean, I want to, you have to share, like if you're having a thought that you think there's value in, you want to share with that person, but it's mainly to have them to get to know them better, you know? Right. So yeah, listening, yeah. I, I get that. I mean, li- yeah. being a good listener would be a high, uh, something to cultivate. Any of us could do that. Yeah. I mean, cause sometimes I will find myself like, you know, a friend is telling me something and you're already sort of formulating your thought and your answer before <laughs> yeah. they've had a chance to finish, you know, what they're telling you. So I am guilty of that here and there. Yeah, yeah for sure. I hear you. I've been that way. It depends on what it is uh, on this show. Sometimes it's like that. Cause you want to keep, uh, you still sort of have like a, um, a commitment to keep the show going, right? So you have to have some feedback, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to, uh, I've, I've had things though. I've noticed that on this show so many times I'm like, Oh, I, they just said this. I've got to ask them this question, but the natural flow of the conversation just moves on. And, and I'll, I won't even think of it again until after I'm editing it. And I go, Oh, I never got to ask them this question. Yeah. So I always hope that someone else will ask it later <laughs> in another interview. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Okay, so this is your last question from the fishbowl. Are you happy with your current work-life balance? If not, what would balance look like to you? That is a that is a really hard question you asked me there. Uh, I think I was um, getting to pretty happy with work life balance pre COVID. Uh, Post COVID, work has for you know just my work as a pediatrician has gotten a lot more stressful for a variety of reasons that could be its own separate show so we won't really go there but i think you know work-life balance for me would be i feel like i have so many interests and and also things that i don't even know if i might be interested in if i tried um so work-life balance for me would be better if I was able to actually pursue everything that I'm intrigued about. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) I understand that completely, completely. We're all multidimensional. I was thinking about that when I was reading your bio before I read your book, I was like, wow, she's got so many interesting things. She's marathon runner. She does yoga. She's a pediatrician. She wrote this book and then it keeps going on and on. And I was like, wow, man, so many, um, you draw circles around those and that's sort of the atom of your life, you know, and I'm sure there's more, you know? Right. Yeah. So, it's hard to balance. Overall, <laughs> I think I've, I've done a pretty good job at work-life balance and, you know, being able to have the, uh, you know, these other outside interests while still, you know, practicing as a pediatrician. Um, but I would like a little, even a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, don't we all want yeah. more harmony? Yeah. I, I yeah. get it. I do. So the last question is not out of the fishbowl, and it's something I've been asking people for at least 60 episodes or so, and it's a a question that my family and I ask each other at the end of the day. Um, We used to say, how was your day? And that sort of left a lot of room for some negative things potentially to come through, but we realized if we focused on the positive, we'd be more grateful. And so instead of asking, how was your day? We ask, did anything good happen today? And so I ask that of you, did anything good happen today? I really think the best thing that happened today is that you and I connected in this interview. Oh, great. Um, You know, we would not, I mean, I think, you know, we, probably would not otherwise ever have you know, met each other or gotten a chance to talk to each other or know each other. Um, and for me, you know, an opportunity to really have a conversation with somebody that I would not, you know, otherwise meet, right. um, that, you know, human connection is more important than anything else. So. Gosh, I, I love yeah. that you said that. Cause I agree. I mean, you, you kind of said that at the beginning that, um, we really probably did. We don't have the same experience, but yet there's still common ground. Boy, isn't that a beautiful thing? I think that's the most yeah. beautiful thing. That's well, how we. That's a common ground. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's how we make peace in this world. I think is when we look for that stuff. Like, where are we connected at? And the only way to do it's through intimate conversations. I think. You know, you can't just scan over somebody. Like someone can't just look at your book and go, "Oh, that's about." something related to transgender i'm not going to read that or i'm not interested they need you know Absolutely. read things consume things that especially the things i think that you have these impulses to pass over maybe that's the thing right. i've tried to do like cultivate like a uh, cultivate that man you're going to meet so mm-hmm. many more people your mind's going to grow your heart's going to grow that's mm-hmm. that's a beautiful thing. I'm glad. Thanks for sharing that. I, I had the same experience. I was I I think your book's a treasure, and um, I like I said, I'm about seventy five little more percent done. So I'm going to finish it up and uh, share it with some folks. Thank you. The last chapter is you might want to have a box of tissues around. Man, chapter. that's that's <laughs> why I was hope I wanted to finish it, and I just I I things kept coming up, yeah. and I said, man, I'm just so yeah. close. But I think. Uh, no. 
I'm, I'm excited to share it with my wife too. You know, she, t- I typically read these books before I do an interview and, and then I pass it on to her. And, uh, really, I, I hope that people will listen to our conversation and pick up the book too. Is there a preferred Absolutely. vendor of your choice as far as, uh, no, really anywhere they can get books, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indie, pa- Indie bound for their local independent bookstore, whatever way they prefer. Okay. It's fine. All right, guys. So the book is Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. Uh, This was Priya Hasuri, MD. And uh, I thank you so much for your time today. I I really did enjoy it and can't wait to share it with folks. Thank you so much. I'm more thankful every moment that I found. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Paria Hasuri, MD. If you'd like to experience Paria's book, Found in Transition, make sure to visit the links in the show notes. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider visiting findthegood.news donate, where you can help this good news mission and organizations working to help in the historic aftermath of Louisiana's 2020 hurricane season. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.